0: Let's turn now in the scriptures to Acts chapter 21 as we continue our series, our sermon series and the the good news, the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 21, we're going to begin in verse 17 and read to verse 36. Stand please for the reading of God's inspired word. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expense so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men. The next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and and the law in this place. Moreover, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut, and they were seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up, arrested him, ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought to the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Oh, man, you may be seated. There was a course that I took in seminary called Mentored Ministry Seminar. And what this course was all about, we, we met, you know, every Wednesday for an hour. And this course was about case studies in complicated matters of church life and leadership. Basically, they would, they would hand us a sheet and it would have all the details of a very difficult case that was um, that really had happened that had rocked a church. And they said, now, how would you deal with this? How would you apply wisdom from the scriptures? Is there an easy answer here? Are there multiple different ways of going forward? And so they'd leave us trying to work it out. And then the pastor um, who was overseeing, the professor overseeing this course would step in and say, all right, here's what you did well. Here's what you missed. Here's how you navigate this complex issue in the life of the church. And all of us left, I think, thinking, well, we, we know what to do. We know how to handle the complicated areas of church life. We're ready to go. At least for me, I came to Dayton, Ohio, and realized, well, not so fast. One of the first uh, complicated things I encountered over at First Street Reformed, uh, actually the very first day I came in uh, and was tasked with leading Sunday school, there was a man there, a homeless man named Larry, and he had a gavel in his hand, and he told me he was going to bang that gavel every time that I said something that he, he deemed false. What do you do with that? How, how do you handle that? And then three months into uh, my internship, uh, COVID-19 broke out. What do you do with that? Uh, we we had quite a time, didn't we? With COVID-19 and, and the Lord was very gracious to us. Many different answers from different corners, many different um, difficulties and controversies to navigate. And I can tell you for sure I was a part of many elders meetings where we would look at each other and we, we were struggling. We, we, we didn't know exactly how to proceed. And I remember one time saying, they didn't teach me how to deal with this in seminary. <laughs> and now I have a long list of things that they didn't teach me how to deal with in seminary. That's just the way it is, isn't it? Well, the fact of the matter, what we see in this text What we're reminded of, we don't really need a reminder, but we are reminded of it. Life in the church is often complicated. Sometimes the church and its leaders make mistakes, sometimes even to the point of sin. But Christ's mission isn't thwarted, it goes on. And that's what we see in this passage really an encouragement, the reality on the ground that church is complicated, but also that sometimes the church errs. Finally, that these errors, these mistakes, even, even our sin in the face of complications do not stop Christ's mission to advance His church. And my prayer is that would be an encouragement to us who belong to Christ's church and who are very aware of its complications. Notice the complicated case that happens here in Jerusalem. If we were a, you know, a mentor and ministry seminar, we'd, 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 we'd open the facts of the case first. And what are the facts before us? Well, the facts are that Paul arrives in Jerusalem. What's he been doing? He's He's been ministering for, for years, for, for nearly a decade or more now, of um, out um, uh, on the far stretches of the Roman Empire to, uh, to whom? To, the, to primarily the Gentiles. He's been bringing the good news of the gospel. He took it, he, he himself learned it in Jerusalem and he took it outward to the, to the nations. And he comes back to Jerusalem, driven back there by the Spirit, um, wants to be there on the church's birthday so that Jew and Gentile are, are brought closer together. And what does he encounter? Well, a warm welcome at first, right? James, who seems to be a leader amongst the brothers there, and all the elders are present, and they say, "Paul, come on in. We're glad you're here. Tell us about the victories of Christ in his gospel. You ever spent time with a missionary overseas? You sit down and they just pour out the, 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 the stories of victories of Christ in his gospel. So I can picture Paul there just saying, "You won't believe what happened in Ephesus." You won't believe what happened in Antioch of Syria. I've been dying to tell you about this. And and, and friends, look, I brought with me Trophimus, the Ephesian. He's a Gentile, and yet he's, he's part of, he's one of us now. He believes in Jesus. He loves our Messiah. Exhibit A of the gospel at work. Here in the flesh. Brothers, the word is going out with power, and Satan cannot stop it. And James stands up and says, Paul, this is, this is, these are quite, quite wonderful things you've told us. But we have a problem. You see, the gospel's been going out here too in Jerusalem. And there are many thousands of Jews who have believed. Satan can't stop the gospel here. And, and these brothers, they are zealous for the law. These are the same brothers who took a stand back in the time of the Maccabees, right? They're they're, they're, their ancestors. When when, um, the Greeks tried to stop the worship of God at the time of the Maccabees, these were the brothers who stood up and even um, took up arms, be willing to fight. They're zealous for the law. They're zealous for the keeping of the law of Moses. And Paul, they're saying that you've gone woke. They're saying that you're somehow... Progressive with respect to the law. Paul, they're saying that you're telling them that Jews don't have to be circumcised. We're free from the ceremonies of the Mosaic law. Paul, we we know that can't be exactly right. So we have a way forward. They're going to hear you're in the city. This is going to be a big deal for the church. And so Paul... Why don't you help us out? We've got four guys here who are poor. And they're, they're believers in Jesus, but they need to take Nazarite vows. They need to go to the temple, they need to shave their head, they need to make a sacrifice. Paul, if you go publicly and you join them, and you shave your head, and you, and you, uh, you pay for them to do this, everyone, believers in Christ included here in the city, will see that you are not anti law, you're not anti Moses. You're not shaking things up. It'll be good for the church, Paul. So what does Paul do? Well, before we get to that, I want you to notice, and you probably already picked up, there is a disconnect here, right? You can't read this and, say, and not say, wait, what is going on? I think what we're seeing here is there is a disconnect. The mother church of Jerusalem for all her wonderful features is still a church that is, is held back in ways by her prejudice, by her hang-ups, by her stuntedness with respect to where we are in progress with Christ accomplishing, fulfilling the law of Moses and bringing Jew and Gentile to a place where, where they, are, they are freed from those types and shadows. I think that's quite obvious from the reading of the whole Bible. And so, when we see that, and we hear, wait, Paul's going to go, and their plan is that he's going to somehow posture himself in the temple so that he's going to to pay vows and, and pay money to the same temple institution that 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 put Christ on the cross. And he's gonna he's gonna make a sacrifice after after um, Christ has already been sacrificed once and for all for sin. This is a plan. You kind of want to say when you get to this point, don't do it, Paul. Come on, do what you do best. Stand up and preach. Tell them. Tell them to get with the program. Tell them to take off the training wheels. Time to get past the temple. Time to get past Nazarite vows and these kinds of things. Tell them that Christ has fulfilled the law. Tell them that it's for freedom's sake that Christ set us free. Galatians 5, why therefore submit ourselves again to a yoke of slavery? Colossians 2.16, Paul tells us that the law is, 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 is full of types and shadows, but their substance, the substance of the ceremonial law was, was whom? Christ. Tell them, Paul. And yet you think about this and you also start to wonder, is is this the moment to take that stand? This issue of law keeping Jew and Gentile and what it meant was the big issue of the early church. The big issue of the early church was not women in ministry or Calvinism and Arminianism or the things that that we think are important that we care about today, they weren't those controversies that rock us today. They were what? It it was, what do you do when before you had Jews and Gentiles and never the two shall meet and now somehow you got to bring them together? So what do you do? Do you have Jews and Gentiles both free from the law of Moses? Do you have Gentiles are free from the law of Moses but Jews are still beholden to it? What do you do? And how do you do this in such a way that Jews can still acknowledge their rich cultural history that's connected with the temple and its ceremonies? And yet moves them forward to see that those things were all always pointing to Jesus. And that circumcision and uncircumcision counts as nothing, but, but we are one in Christ. These are complicated issues. And they have the potential to be the biggest dumpster fire the church has ever seen. Right there at its beginning. Just to divide the church in two. What do you do? If you're Paul, do you take a stand and say, I will not do this thing. I'm not going to be part of this ridiculousness. And you elders, it's a shame you even brought it up. Well, now you've got Paul versus James in that case. That's no good. What does Paul do? Well, Paul goes with the plan. In fact, we don't even really know what he thought about it. We're not told, are we? Doesn't say what Paul thought about it. Doesn't say whether he does this begrudgingly. Doesn't say whether he does it with joy and excitement in his heart. We we don't know. We know that the elders wanted him to do it. And he did it. Was it the right choice? I don't know. Was it a bad plan? I tend to think so, but frankly, I don't know. This is complicated. And it's bringing us face to face with the reality that church issues are often extremely complicated. You can read your entire Bible. You can know firm and foundational principles that you do not move from. And yet, even so, there are times in which you say, you scratch your head and you just say, they didn't teach me this in seminary. What do I do with this one? How do I go forward? Isn't that what life is like in Christ's church sometimes? It's just not laid out for you, nice and clean. And that makes some of us squirm. Well, I want it to be clean. I want it to be black and white. It's not always like that. I'm sorry. It's the reality on the ground. What can we learn here? We we can learn that church life is often complicated. And that we need to reckon with that. It has to have our place in our view of the church. But then there are principles that I think we even learn from this passage about how to navigate life in the complexities of, of, of a church that is seeking in wisdom to apply the scriptures to various issues, various matters, various ceremonies. And what we see in Paul is a big heart for the gospel. A big heart for the gospel that teaches us what we do, how, how we can begin to just navigate these complexities. Two things we learned from Paul. The first is that if you're going to, to, to make it in Christ's church when complexities are, 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 are on the scene, then friends, you need a heart that will flex for the gospel. You need a heart that will flex for the gospel. Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that you binge your principles and you 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 you, uh, you accommodate your beliefs to whatever just the church wants. No, no. There are oftentimes, in fact, there are times today that we take that Luther stand and we say. The word of God says this, I can do, I, I can't do anything else but follow the word of God here. We don't abandon our convictions, but we've got to be able to seek the unity of the church above the exercise of individual rights. That's what Paul does here, isn't it? He becomes all things to all men. 1 Corinthians 9 is this helpful paradigm for understanding what's going on in this passage. What is Paul doing? He's becoming as a man under under the law to those who are under the law. Not because he believes he's under the law, but because by doing this, he, he, he preserves the unity of the church and keeps that window for proclaiming the gospel and the church growing in the knowledge of Jesus open. So Paul says, all right, when I'm in Jerusalem, I'm not going to eat any pork. But when I'm with the Gentiles, different story. Why? Because I'm trying to flex to, to, to get my arms around the whole church. John Calvin tends to be known as a theologian who is inflexible. I would suggest he flexed quite a bit. He got a letter from some parishioners, some, uh, some churchgoers. They used to go to his church in Geneva and then they move on and they go to a French uh, town called Wetzel and there they have a new church, new leadership and there's some things that are different. For starters, the pastor wears something called a chasuble when he preaches, when he gets up there and it looks a little bit more Roman Catholic than what people were used to in Geneva. In fact, it was disconcerting to those who went from Geneva to Wetzel. And then the other thing is during the Eucharist, during the Lord's Supper, they all get out candles and light them as part of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And if you know anything about Reformed worship, introduction of new things, it's something that we really, we think we have good reason to stand against. We say, careful here. Is this what God's word says? We worship God according to his word. God's word regulates our worship. And so something as simple as candles, you say, well, what's the big deal about candles? Well, if you're getting improvisational with God's worship, that's, that's no bueno. And so these, these folks, they write to Calvin, they say, Calvin, what do we do? Pastor, should we worship at this church? They've got candles, they've got chasubles. They look more Roman Catholic than we're used to. And, and Calvin writes back and he says, you know, these are important matters you're bringing up. And they're things that leaders of churches really ought to attend to. But. But. I'm going to quote him here. He says, but should our lot be cast in some place where a different form prevails, there is not one of us who, for, who from spite against a, chan- a candle or chasuble would consent to separate himself from the body of the church and so deprive himself of the use of the sacrament. We must be on our guard not to scandalize those who are already subject to such infirmities, which we should certainly do by rejecting them too from frivolous motives. And when it would be for us a matter of deep regret, if the French church might be erected, there should be broken up because we would not accommodate ourselves to some ceremonies that do not affect the substance of our faith. And then he goes on and he says this. It is perfectly lawful for the children of God to submit to many things of which they do not approve. Let us lay it down as a settled point to make mutual concessions in all ceremonies that do not involve any prejudice to the confession of our faith. And for this end, that the unity of the church be destroyed by our excessive rigor and moroseness." What's Calvin saying? He's saying, if you can't flex at all, then you've got to have a bigger heart for the gospel, for Christ's church. So here's a question for us. What is it that we insist on or refuse at expense of this body's unity? And if we're inflexible on some point, brothers and sisters, you ought to be very, very sure that that inflexibility is rooted rock hard in the word of God. And it's so obvious that it is worth that cost to the body. You need a heart that will flex when appropriate, when appropriate. You also need a heart that will submit to leaders. Notice We don't hear Paul's thoughts on this plan. I was waiting for it. Where where does Paul speak out and say what he thinks? Well, we don't hear it. He just does what the leaders tell him to do. Why? Because they're his leaders. Because Paul too is a man under authority. And he knows that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Do you know how many times I've seen that? When I'm in the midst of a difficult church situation, I say, oh man, what should I do here? And then Mr. Jones and Mr. Wagner and, 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 and Pastor Peppo, they say, well, we all have some insights here. And, 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 and even when I'm not 100% sure it's the right course, I say, hey, I'm not the only one here. You know, isn't that comforting in a certain sense? Comfort for the troubled conscience. Now, when there are those issues that you're saying, well, how do I apply this in real life? How do I, how do I apply this? You know, the, the scriptures aren't, aren't incredibly clear about this one point. What do I do? How do I navigate this? I, I, I don't know how wisdom looks like in this area. If you are to any degree uncertain, talk to your leaders. Bring in a multitude of counselors and your, your, your troubled conscience. The conscience, this is what should I do? I don't know. I don't want to do wrong. Can find some comfort in the fact that the Lord gave you leaders. Put them over you. Not, not some other leaders somewhere else. Don't, don't go doing a poll of all the churches around you. Ask your leaders. Because God made them your shepherds. Ask him, am I applying scripture right to this complicated area? Help me. And there is comfort in a multitude of counselors. You say, well, what if they make mistakes? What if they tell me something that's wrong? Well, you don't check out, right? You don't check out. You keep your scriptures open. You see whether what they're telling you. Coincides with the scriptures, makes sense in light of the scriptures. But you also don't freak out. Don't check out, but don't freak out. And I mean this, you're not going to freak out. Why? Because, Because the church, though it makes mistakes, though it institutes plans that are not perfect, Christ's mission goes on. And often even through those plans. Look at what happened here. It's through this crazy, confusing plan regarding Paul and the Nazarite vow that God accomplishes his plans to get Paul to Rome, where the gospel is going to flip the world upside down and take the place of power and make it a place of Christ's kingship. God gets Paul to Rome. How How does God get Paul to Rome? Through the perhaps mistaken plan of the elders of that city. That's how big Jesus is. Jesus, our savior, Jesus, our king, doesn't get trapped or stuck or stunted by our plans, even when we blow it, even when we miss the mark. So does it mean we just do whatever we want, make whatever plans we want? No. We stick to the scriptures. We don't check out, but we don't freak out. A heart that will flex a heart that will submit to leaders and a heart that trusts in jesus says christ i'm going to take these steps i hope i'm right but if i'm wrong will you get me where i need to be through through even my my mistakes even the mistakes of my leaders you're my king get me where i need to be take me to glory Let's pray. Heavenly Father, church life does get complicated, but you are not pigeonholed by our complications. You you are sovereign and above them. So would you guide us? Would you guide us to greater unity as the body of Christ? Would you humble us where we need humbled? Would you teach us to flex where we need to flex? And would you teach us to, to stand strong where we need to say, no, I cannot but preach the word. And Lord, would you help us to do all this, trusting that Christ is our King. He will bring us through. It's in his name we pray, amen.